edition, the pilot episode, if you will, of Failure Peace Theater with Tim and Catherine. Um, your purveyors of cinematic disasters that didn't quite hit the mark, but are probably still worth your time. Uh, this week's cinematic failure is John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars, the immortal 2001 film starring Natasha Henstridge and Ice Cube. Uh, but before we get into our deep dive into Ghosts of Mars, let's see what we've been watching. All right. Um, hello, Catherine. Hello. How are you doing? I'm great. Oh, it's wonderful to hear your Trapped voice. in the basement. <laughs> Is the basement warm or cold on this interesting it's, spring night? It's quite chilly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my room's pretty cool, too. I feel you. Uh, but I have a blanket draped over my head to try and improve sound quality. So if that has any effective, uh, if, if it's effective, I'm going to guess it's not. The audio we'll blanket port. Yes, it is the audio version of a four-year-old's blanket fort. And it's great. I love it. Uh, so what are you consuming during this time of incredible uh, trouble and strife to uh, um, deal with the pandemic blues, so to speak. I've been watching a lot of just television shows, uh, but recently I've kind of been revisiting some old horror films. Well, not old. I mean, old as in older. Um, but I hit up uh, The Ring, Gore Verbinski's The Ring again. And I really enjoy that movie. I like the Japanese one, too. Um, I own both of them, actually. But they put The Ring up on Netflix, so uh, that one was kind of pleasant to fall asleep to, which sounds strange. I like to watch The Ring when I go to sleep. So the last thing I see before I fall asleep is The Ring. Yeah, I, I fall asleep to horror pretty often these days. Um uh, I'm kind of in the same place. We actually, and to speak of Verbinski, um, as a family, we just sort of revisited and introduced my children to the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean films. And um, man, watching those now, you know, sort of post MCU and the sort of house franchise style that Disney has developed for, you know, these big summer blockbusters. I don't know if Gore Verbinski doesn't, I don't think he gets enough credit for establishing what I think eventually became that style for Disney. Um, because those pirates films, and it's not so much in how they're designed. Like, you know, they have script problems, um, you know, they have Johnny and, Depp and some tonal issues. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things, but they're enjoyable films and they're shot cleanly, which I think is the main thing that, you know, the franchise building Marvel universe films have, have sort of done, um, they're they're shot practically there's a lot of special effects but it's well managed um there's just i think verbinski may be more responsible for our current sort of what is a summer blockbuster situation than a lot of people give him credit for and he is and and what's funny is he did the absolute same thing for horror like i do not think we would have horror currently if it was not for gore verbinski and the ring specifically i mean obviously it led to the huge explosion of j horror stuff that came over here the grudge and the eye and all that stuff although the eye was was korean but still um uh yeah i just i i think verbinski was more of a 
more of an early leader in that sort of blockbuster cinema style than we give him a lot of credit for now. Of course, he's kind of fallen off the face of the map. Um, a Cure yeah, for Wellness was was really strange. I don't know if you yeah, saw that one or not. Good. I I didn't see that one. Um, but in the in the ring, I noticed that you know, comparing it to something like Pirates of the Caribbean, which is one of my all time favorite guilty pleasure popcorn munching movies. I mean, Skeleton Pirates. I can't I can't ignore the power of that. Um, but I love that his his style evolves to suit whatever the genre might be. Like, Pirates of the Caribbean had this very kind of golden, like, old Hollywood look to it. Like, it had that Errol Flynn kind of polish and sheen. Like, it was, it was very that meets live-action Disney. And then The Ring feels like a much smaller film. And, like, the, the color timing is beautiful. I mean, it's, it's a gorgeous film. But it doesn't feel like they're even made by the same person. Agreed. Yeah, it's 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 a gloriously shot movie. Um, you know, one of the earliest ones of that time period to really experiment with filters for setting mood. A lot of greens, a lot of blues. Um, you know, it's just just a beautiful, beautiful movie. Um, in terms of horror, I've been revisiting a lot of horror as well. Um, but most of what I've been looking at is the more modern. Uh, I've been watching a lot of the more recent Blumhouse uh, horror films. So I watched The Hunt, which obviously was in the news for a bunch of reasons. I don't think any of that was warranted. Uh, honestly, it's not it's not good enough to warrant that kind of discussion. <laughs> Although it did have some, some really glorious parts. There were a couple of great lines and uh, some good setups and sequences. And then I also watched the uh, recent Fantasy Island release, which was problematic, to say the least. Uh, elements that worked really well, obviously adapting a 1970s TV show starring uh, Ricardo Montalban poses a whole interesting set of challenges, but uh, there were there was a lot of things about it that I think choices that would have been made if it wasn't being built around a budget instead of a script, which, you know, is kind of Blum's mantra, you know, you, you build to a dollar figure, not necessarily, you know, tell the story that needs to be told. And I think it could have gone differently, but well, I kind of admire that model. You know, that's a very, that's a very eighties sort of trauma team concept mm -hmm. with horror and i, I yeah. don't know i can i can get behind it a lot of the movies are bad but i'll still watch them yeah no i think uh it's it's, it's a really fantastic way to produce films because you you basically guarantee your film's success and then if something really does hit you only sort of layer success on which um you know i don't know if you've seen it yet but the the recent invisible man remake is glorious uh it's just absolutely great still abides by that same rule it was shot very inexpensively i want to say around seven to ten million dollars somewhere in that ballpark i'm sure the marketing for it was a little higher because they really did push it but um, really a great movie uh lee wannell uh, of saw fame and insidious fame and many other things i like uh, that guy I like yeah him. he's just he's really come into his own uh he lived in james wan's shadow for a while but now i think he's he's established himself as a director of several different genres obviously he's got some acting chops too so i'm really looking forward to what he does next because invisible man was absolutely stellar uh, from beginning to end great visual storytelling um 
a lot of horror films and Fantasy Island would actually fall into this category too. They really struggle with establishing backstory for characters. You know, we've we've talked about just ourselves many many times that you know a horror movie isn't going to work if you don't care about the characters, right? If they're just yeah. fired to be murdered, then whatever, who cares? And Invisible Man does such a fantastic job of establishing history, backstory, relationship in moments, really. Like, it's it's the opening of the film. It's wordless. It's just done with visual language, and it's great all the way through. Uh, and then it establishes a, a really interesting sort of modern take on a classic movie monster, right? Unlike a film that I have no doubt we will talk about very soon. Uh, and that would be Tom Cruise's The Mummy, which the Invisible Man was originally being designed to go along with the dark universe, cinematic universe. Um, But once that uh, did not get off the grounds, then uh, Wannell was was brought in and and took it in a different direction. And I, I think... The, I think Universal as a studio is very pleased with what what came out of it, as, as I would be too. So, His idea was better than their idea. <laughs> yes, very much so, for sure. Yeah, I'm definitely getting into... Uh, I'm watching a ton of horror and stuff right now, but I've been revisiting a lot of things too. Uh, some of the newer Alien entries. Uh, I kind of watched Prometheus again and uh, mm. Alien Covenant. Mm. And, uh, you know, we'll probably end up talking about those quite a bit too, but... Needless to say, I, I don't know if those movie des- movies deserved the the hate that they got at the time. They're certainly flawed, uh, both of them, in a variety of ways. But uh, I think ultimately there's some really interesting things going on there. Uh, and if anything, Alien Covenant's primary weaknesses are where it is trying desperately to please uh, fans of the original Alien films instead of just kind of turning and doing its own thing. But, um, but yeah, so... That's kind of where I'm at, too. A little bit of TV here and there, but mostly just movies as I'm either working from home, plotting away at my computer, or, you know, chilling out after everybody's gone to bed. So Nice. Cool. Anything else? Um, well, I'm watching The Office in its glorious final year on Netflix, so I'm just re-watching that over and over again because quarantine. Um. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, The Office is a uh, a constant source of pleasure, and uh, definitely something to, <laughs> <laughs> definitely something to help in in these trying times. All right, well, um, let's go ahead and move into our our main segment then. So tonight we are going to talk a little bit about in in this particular case we're going to talk about John Carpenter, uh, a filmmaker near and dear to both of our hearts. Uh, I think you would agree. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, I, I was trying, oh, as, as I was prepping for the episode, to remember the first John Carpenter movie that I can remember seeing. And I, I want to say that it was actually The Thing. Um, I, I wondered if it might be a different one, but I didn't actually see Halloween until much later in my life. Um, our parents were not huge horror film fans, uh, a little bit here and there, but... I think dad, definitely more than mom, but, um, I think it was the thing. And I remember being absolutely terrified as, as one might expect. And either the thing uh, or escape from New York. I'm really not sure. I mean, it was something with Kurt Russell, you know? So, and you were there, so it was probably the thing. Um, that movie terrified me. It still terrifies me. 
yeah, it's it's an evergreen film in terms of uh, its terror quotient. I think it's just a constant stress. Um, you know, the moment the the first beat of the soundtrack hits, it, it just drives itself into your brain, and and um, then you know, obviously the special effects and everything. But um, so that was probably my first experience with Carpenter. Um, and then we've got, of course, a lot of his '80s output was was problematic. Uh, I remember watching Starman as a kid and and really liking it um, for what it was. Although I think I was primarily confused by most of what was going on, it didn't make a ton of sense uh, in an ET world. You know, this sort of complex look at what might happen if there was really an alien from another planet here, uh, sort of you know, didn't, didn't hit my brain in the way that it probably should have. And then, uh, big trouble in little China, you know, things like that, but probably um, one of my favorite movies of all time. Yeah. It's up there for me too. Yeah, for sure. And the fog. I can't ignore what a wonderful movie the fog is. Just fabulous. Adrian Barbeau throwing herself around a radio station, ghost pirates. It's, It's so great. Yeah, the fog's one that um, it it doesn't always stick in my brain as a, a carpenter film, even though it has all of his his hallmark qualities. Uh, but I I do have fond memories of that one too. Uh, we'll leave the remake to a later discussion, mm-hmm. but the uh, uh-huh. the original still holds up quite well. Um, and Isn't of the course, from Lost in the remake, the blonde girl, the yeah, uh, Emily something, yeah. Oh and uh, Tom Welling too, wasn't it? Wasn't Tom Welling in that one? That uh, sounds Superman, right. Smallville <laughs> Superman. Oh yes. Sure. But so let's let's talk a little bit about Ghosts of Mars. So, what are your, you know, before we get really deep into it, what are your sort of overall impressions, feelings on really Carpenter's second to last film? Uh, he only made one movie after this, and that movie was made almost ten years after this one was released. Uh, so what are your sort of, what's your thoughts on Ghost of Mars before we dig in? Out of time, just not, not really filmed in the right era. Um, it felt like he was making a 1982 film um, in 2000. Um, when I look at the release date, it doesn't, it doesn't feel real. I'm like, 2000? How did that come out in 2000? Um, but if I... I think of it as a movie that if it had come out maybe 10 years later or 10 years earlier at least, maybe even 20 years earlier, it would have been so much more successful because we just the climate of movie making was just different both later and before the movie came out. It just seems like it came out at the absolute worst time. I would be, I think that's, that's a lot of it. Um, I think, John Carpenter, unfortunately, is a filmmaker that was so important in establishing so much of what we consider modern film that he found himself either unable, which I don't really think that's it, and more perhaps unwilling to adapt to new methods. Um, you know, he he had developed a style of filmmaking that was very comfortable and worked for him. And Ghost of Mars feels like that. Now, very famously, supposedly, this was developed initially as a uh, escape film with Kurt Russell. But after the underperformance of Escape from L.A., 
that was dropped. The studio was unwilling to support the uh, the expenditure for another film after the underperformance of that. So he developed it into an independent project, which accounts for a lot of the similarities between Desolation Williams and Snake Plissken, um, yeah. you know, down down to their their attitudes and their their general style of dress. Um, but it does feel, uh, in a lot of ways, it's it's to me. I love watching this movie. Uh, I don't love the movie, but I love the experience of watching it, which is a very strange place to be. But it's one of those films that I can put on and just watch and enjoy and not really have to think about very much. I don't have to, I don't have to be heavily invested in it, which sometimes is nice because the story just moves swiftly and flies along, but it has all of those hallmarks of an eighties carpenter action film. You know, we, if anything, it has all of them. It has every beat, right? It's, it's a siege movie for about 30 minutes in the middle. It's a character driven actioner like escape. Um, in that we've got this person who's sort of beset upon and asked to do a thing that he really shouldn't have to do, but you know, he has to for his survival. Um, and, and even sort of the odd, cultish, strange elements that we would see in something even like Prince of Darkness, um, you know, where we have this sort of cultish force, uh, and I guess mouth into the mouth of madness too, um, this cultish force that's sort of pressing in on our heroes that is kind of inescapable. So, I mean, it's, it's really kind of everything that John Carpenter seems to enjoy futzing around with all rolled into one. And maybe that's why I like it. Maybe there's just a little bit of those pieces there enough for me to, to sort of hold on to. Um, but I, I guess let's go ahead. Let's uh, summarize sort of the film and what's going on for our listeners that maybe don't know this one, which you may not because it, it did not do well. Um, it was made very inexpensively. I want to say around $14 million, and it barely made half that back in theaters, um, which sort of sealed the coffin for John Carpenter's film work for a while. Now, he moved into television. He got involved in doing some uh, horror TV series on cable, which did very well, and I enjoy a lot of those. <clears throat> but uh, this was kind of the end of his his film journey. Uh, and for a guy that never really got along with Hollywood, um, it was kind of an, an ignominious end, maybe you know, it's, it's kind of sad that he went out on, on a note like this. There is a film after this that we will you know, discuss at a future date as well. But for all intents and purposes, this is John Carpenter's last hurrah with, you know, traditional filmmaking in Hollywood. This was his last big picture, mm-hmm. if we can say that. Yeah, The Ward is a very, very constrained film. And, and there's some excellent pieces to that, too. I, I mean, that's one that, that I, yeah, I think The Ward is, is overlooked, especially for that era of horror. Um, right around 2009, 2010, uh, horror had resurged. People were investing a lot of time and energy in it, but it was, it was kind of growing stale, and he really tried to do some interesting things with that, especially with narrative, which is going to be an issue with this film and our discussion oh. of that. Uh, yes. All right, so let's, uh, let's summarize. Uh, so well. go, uh, I'll let you take it first. Uh, so what, uh, what is the overall plot, overarching plot of Ghosts of Mars? They got to get their asses to Mars to get a prisoner named Desolation Williams, which is the coolest name I've ever heard. And when they get to Mars, these space cops... Um, 
God, this sounds weirder when I say it out loud. Yeah, when you start trying to articulate it, things get a little (laughs) bit wonky. Um, Because they're not just space cops. They're space cops who enforce the laws of Earth. But yet, in this future world, at least Mars, I guess maybe everything, is run by a matriarchy. Uh, a, a female-led government from the top down, uh, which is an absolutely backgrounded element. It's thrown up on a title card right at the beginning, but it has some interesting implications uh, for how we're meant to interpret the, f- the presence of females in the film and, and how women are, are sort of displayed and presented to us, but also to support the badassness of these characters and that I read that in an interview with, with Carpenter. He said he felt that that would make them more badass that they were from this matriarchal society. So another strange element, but that's what this movie is. It's a bunch of strange elements. So, <laughs> all right. So the cops are trying to get a dude. So what Which else? They're trying to get the dude. They go to Mars and they find uh, trouble in the form of, well, Joss Whedon would call them Reavers. Um. Yeah, there we have to acknowledge the fact that there is some significant crossover here with uh, the main villains of the future Firefly series, which um, didn't come out too far after this, actually. It, it didn't. It didn't. And I guess that sort of brought me to one of my first realizations about the film on this rewatch, um, is that I kind of wish the crazies were crazier. I feel like a lot of those scenes could have been slightly more extreme, slightly more terrifying. I, I, I guess maybe 2000 wasn't progressed enough in the horror comeback for us to have like super violence, but I don't know. I was, I, that's one thing I was kind of wishing for this time. Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely an issue. So in essence, Mars is is being colonized, has been terraformed. I mm-hmm. guess that's another kind of key component, which is mostly just to justify why they're not wearing spacesuits. <laughs> uh, although they do wear uh, really cool ski goggles for a, a big chunk of the outdoor sequences. That Apparently was that, was, uh, that was a consideration because they were filming in a gypsum mine, so there was a lot of dust. Uh, and apparently it was, it was quite aggravating to pretty much everybody who worked on the film. Um, but... So it's been terraformed, and there's mining going on, of course, because, you know, what else are we going to do with a foreign planet that's basically barren? And uh, as we're told in one of the films, many flashbacks, uh, something was discovered, and it has infected the miners in some significant way. And now they, not all of them, again, that's never really addressed, but not, not all of the miners, but a chunk of them, are, I think the number 200 is thrown around really frequently by several characters in the film, uh, are infected with some kind of airborne virus, uh, if we want to call it that. So kind of airborne contagion that is possessing them and turning them into these ravenous creatures that uh, self-mutilate. And uh, I don't know where these items come from or, or how they somehow are like nailing things into their faces. <clears throat> it seems like a lot of trouble, but 
my favorite uh, uh, in essence the, the film the, the they encounter these guys and then the sort of back half of the film the last 40 minutes or so is them uh, escaping from them in a variety of ways trying to get back to this transport train that dropped them off and is you know headed back to pick them up again uh, piloted by one of the Carradine brothers uh, the one from Revenge of the Nerds which is great and the immortal Peter Jason uh, if we can take a moment and uh, in a segment that I hope will recur we we will point out and uh, celebrate the life and works of of Peter Jason perhaps the uh, one of the the greatest examples of the hey I know that guy uh, <laughs> phenomenon from film uh, 250 credits to his name uh, and climbing I think he's got nine current current films uh getting ready to come out this year so uh just an incredibly prolific bit actor uh and his work with carpenter Carpenter. he's in from la he's in live uh which is is incredible film uh he kind of pops up really frequently in carpenter's work so i'm always happy to see uh peter jason doing his thing uh, but yeah, so I mean, in, uh, Ice Cube is Desolation Williams, uh, is a rough and tumble uh, thief, murderer. Uh, we, we never really Bad know. Uh, there's a lot of characters who provide exposition saying something to the effect that, uh, you know, he was killing himself. He's always let off because he's killed in self-defense. Right. That kind of thing. So it's one of those things we're supposed to, to register him as a badass, but he may not be a true, you know, psychopath, I guess. I don't know exactly what we're supposed to take away from that, but uh, he does get the chance to, you know, be an action hero over the course of, of this sequence of, of time in the film. Uh, so any other bits from the story that we need to address before we sort of dive in? Well, the, the fact that it's a matriarchal society um, kind of stuck out I mean, as I get older, I start to see those storytelling elements and I, I, I find the problem in them. Whereas when I was a kid, I didn't really think about it. I mean, in 2000, I think I was 13, 14. Um, so I didn't really think about it. Um, but the, the matriarchal society kind of fascinates me because it attempts to reposition the female characters as more powerful when it simultaneously exposes the problems of a patriarchal society because there are several there are a lot of scenes where the women sort of express almost favoritism at least in the court scenes with um with natasha henstridge's character um which is our, our framing device, uh, right. which a lot of people, if you read any reviews on this, a lot of people saw it as an inherent weakness because it drains tension. You kind of know what the outcome is, which I don't necessarily agree with. But, uh, but yeah, those those framing device sequences are, are interesting. I don't think they were reshoots, but they feel like reshoots, which is weird. But, yeah, go ahead. I liked the, the storytelling angles and how it sort of webs together and, and uses all of these flashbacks. Um, but the, I guess I, I, I was a little more challenged this time to believe that it was a matriarchal society since so many of the masculine characters, the men in the movie, behave like men do. So I didn't really feel like that, that was as successful... Um, 
a storytelling element as it could have been. If they would have maybe forced some of the male roles into this almost... Especially Jason Statham. I mean, it's, it is what it yeah. is. Yeah, Statham is the biggest offender here. Um, if they would have made in him terms demure, of his character, I think that yeah. would have been so fascinating. If they would have made all of the women these... these you know, absolutely over-the-top, badass, you know, completely not masculine, but just not in need of masculinity, and then have all of the male characters just sort of, I don't know, simps, I guess. I just think that would have been a way to really drive the point home, and it would have made it a little more apparent that that's what was going on. But Statham's character kind of stands out as one yeah, a problem for me. Yeah, I never really, I mean, again, the fact that it, it's set in a matriarchy, I think, is a really interesting story element. I mean, it doesn't have to be there, um, but it's it doesn't really show up in the way that the characters behave, right? If this was a truly established thing, um, most of the men still act very derisively uh, to the women. I mean, we even have a sequence towards the end where Jericho, uh, Jason Statham's character, uh, which Jason Statham is... is was, yeah, I mean, he's he's very much in that early phase of his career post uh, Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch, where he's just kind of the smarmy British guy, um, which he's kind of come back to in the recent <laughs> Fast and Furious films. But uh, he's he's really sort of above the pale here. Um, he's uh, still has his hair, which is is just weird to see <laughs> now. Um you know, it was very much on its way out, but he, he still has a, you know, his, his full head of hair. And uh, as, as a character, he's dismissive of Natasha Henstridge, even though she's established very early on as being sort of in command. Uh, after Pam Greer, who makes a very quick appearance in the film. Uh, I love her. I she's just love I mean, her character. I, I wish she had been in it longer. Yeah, it feels... Again, it feels a little ahead of its time. You know, now the the sort of like famous person cameo in a big budget action film is, is pretty big. Um, the Hunt, the movie I mentioned earlier, it has one. There's like a big famous person cameo reveal uh, at the end that is is pretty is pretty good. You know, works. And so even there, it feels like you know Carpenter is kind of preceding the trend by bringing Pam Greer in really only to have her die. I mean, she's only in the movie for maybe 10 to 15 minutes um, she helps before her set, character is, is taken out. She helps set the tone of sexuality in the film though, which I, I appreciated that they acknowledge yes to matriarchal society and how would a gay woman behave in that sort of situation? I don't necessarily believe Pam Greer is how they would behave. But I like that the movie tried to do something with that concept of a gay woman in a matriarchal society. I thought that was neat. Yeah, apparently a lot of people didn't pick up on the fact that she was hitting on Hentress's character, which I think is hard to believe. It's a very overt pass. Oh, um, yeah. I noticed it right but, away. Uh, I was like, I wish Pam Greer would hit on me like that. That'd be <laughs> yeah, no awesome. Kidding. Um, but yeah, in a lot of ways, I think it's, it's there to reinforce that in a society like that, it would not be as unacceptable, right? That there would not be this, this, uh, 
you know, sort of negative connotation about two women being together. And I think that was, again, kind of ahead of its time. Apparently, some people on set didn't even pick up uh, Carpenter's commentary track. He he mentions that even some of the, the characters on screen didn't really, some of the other characters didn't realize that that's what that was supposed to be. And that's, um, that's kind of a, a credit to the film, that it didn't go, hey, look, we're gay. Check it out. It's gays. They exist. Let's make them part of the movie. It just sort of puts it in there as this is a thing that would realistically happen. I mean, we've all, we know about the problems with military law enforcement and any of those careers and sexual harassment and, you know, those... Those kinds of situations, I mean, I, I you hear about them, and then this movie comes out, and I know it's Ghosts of Mars I'm talking about here. I keep realizing that. I'm like, you're talking about a John Carpenter film. But it interests me that in 2000, he was thinking a bit more progressively um, in terms of the script. He didn't have this big, like, women are gay in the future moment. He just had, like, this is a woman making a pass at another woman because that would be acceptable in their society. I don't know. That's a big thing to me. Yeah, I I really think that uh, you know, Carpenter has always been good at sort of touching on the future, but in a realistic way. Um, and a lot of times it feels like he sets up these worlds and then just drops the characters into them and lets them things play out. And... It, then it's later that people are like, hey, you need to explain this more. You need to delve into this more. And I don't think he's ever really interested in doing that. Like, I don't think he's interested in world building beyond the world that he needs to build to allow his characters to go and, and have the adventures he wants them to have. And uh, and I appreciate that, right? You know, it's a very, again, it's a very sort of old school way of doing things. You know, it's, it's really a more recent trend that's, fans of science fiction films and fantasy films demand these fleshed out worlds with specified rules and how they function and what they do because it's franchisement i mean they're trying to build a franchise they're trying to say like this is what we want the sequel to be about this is we want a prequel series we want a television companion series and carpenter didn't come from that school of filmmaking yeah, no, they're standalone movies. I mean, and you can see that with the escape films. You know, obviously, they're really the only... I mean, uh, apart from Halloween, I guess, he really hasn't done franchising. Um, and Halloween, you can tell that he was completely disinterested in continuing yeah. those stories. I mean, it was, you know, I, my personal opinion is it was, you know, purely financially motivated. It was just so huge that it was a strike while the iron's hot kind of thing. But by the time mm -hmm. we get to Halloween three, you know, you can see that he has no interest in fleshing out the continued backstory of Michael Myers. You know, he wants yeah. to just tell interesting horror stories using the Halloween name. And, and of course at the time fans revolted. Um, I think we've come around on that now. Uh, I think that, <laughs> I think if, if anything, John Carpenter's entire career could be subtitled with, we've come around on that now. Uh, because he's he was just twenty he was just twenty years ahead of of thinking on a lot of this stuff and and trying to to do interesting things, but you know with with this you know I think he just wanted a fun sandbox to play in he wanted to go to Mars he wanted to go to space, um, and and I think he just wanted to a setup that could make that work and uh, and he came up with it 
right? Um, his co-screenwriter in this particular case is uh, Larry Sulkis, who is, is a pretty frequent collaborator, right? He had done a lot of uh, uncredited work on some uh, of his uh, documentaries and some things like that you know, a little bit of crew work on They Live, that kind of thing. So he'd been kind of around John Carpenter, and, and when Carpenter needed some assistance with the script, you know, Salkus came in and, and gave him some help. Because, again, I think, you know, listening to the commentary on the Blu-ray, and I think this is kind of where Carpenter became disinterested in the process of filmmaking as a filmmaker. I think he loves telling stories. I think he loves setting up shots. I think he loves that, but I don't think the enterprise of filmmaking, right? The 10,000 decisions a minute that a director has to make. I think he became pretty, I think he became pretty frustrated with this film. Because um, even in the commentary track, he and Henstridge kind of go back and forth. Because uh, I guess that's the other kind of big thing in the room. Uh, Natasha Henstridge is the lead of this film, who, of course, is very well known for the species films, uh, mm-hmm. among other things. But, you know, she had never really, apart from some B stuff, had never really carried a film. Um do you know who was supposed to be the original lead of this film? I guess we haven't really talked about that. I actually don't. According to Carpenter, it was originally supposed to be Courtney Love. Ooh. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm sorry. Which That's I think my natural explains, Courtney Love reaction. <laughs> yeah, which I think explains uh, some of Carpenter's choices with the soundtrack for this one. Which, unfortunately, I would say, even though I, I pretty much love all of Carpenter's soundtracks, I think he's he's sort of an underrated soundtrack genius, especially when it comes to scoring his own films. Um, this one is a lot of very timely late 90s, early 2000s rock. Guitar. I wish it had been mixed differently. The, the soundtrack, I think Carpenter doesn't give his music in films a spotlight because he sees it as this is a serviceable soundtrack and it will work for what I want to do. And then the soundtrack is not loud enough in this movie where there are scenes where I, I want those heart pumping action sequences and the music is so quiet. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not it's not present in the soundtrack like it needs to be. And I think it does bring the energy level down. Uh, A lot of the action sequences in this, even though they're shot in very traditional John Carpenter style, um, although I I will say that there are more um, sort of lift shots of guys getting, you know, blown into the air off of a lift um, in this one. Than, than maybe any other action movie I've ever seen. Like, there are just dudes getting flung into the air constantly in these action sequences. <laughs> um, you know, and, and I don't know why. I mean, he could have been gory about it. Uh, the film, I guess that's one thing we could address, too. Um, the opening of the film is, is a traditional carpenter, you know, slow burn, right? There's really not a lot happening. Right. We get the framing device the group going out to acquire Desolation Jones, I want to say Desolation Jones, but Desolation Williams. Um, And then they arrive and, and, you know, there's the, the typical, one thing I will say, this film struggles with exposition. Like it really has a hard time conveying important expository information to us as an audience. And really it comes down to a character, usually either Jason Statham 
or Natasha Henstridge just straight up saying, here's what we're doing and here's what's happening. Uh, Jason Statham spends a lot of his time in this movie opening doors. Uh, he is the door opening guy. Um, and if he is not physically opening a door, we are being told that he has opened or is about to open a door by another character very frequently, which I just found hilarious. Uh, it reminded me, I've been playing the Resident Evil games uh, here lately as a, a sort of, uh, you know, callback. And it just was the master of unlocking thing. Like he was just, I think he even doesn't even say that in the movie. Where he, he's like, he does. He's like, he I can unlock any, anything on this mm-hmm. planet or whatever. And he makes some, some sort of some, some sort of comment to her about unlocking, I guess, her underpants. I'm not really sure what he was talking about. Yeah, but you just, know, again, there's some problematic elements there. So, so they arrive at this location, and obviously things have gone bad. It's deserted, you know. So we get those great kind of classic carpenter group of people moving through a deserted town, deserted building, blah blah blah. Uh, and, and then, of course, they find all kinds of artifacts everywhere, you know, things wrapped in nails, scissors torn in half, um, which there were so many scissors. I have no idea why a mining colony on Mars would need that many scissors. But they got a lot are. of hair to cut, <laughs> a lot of hair to cut, a lot of paper to shred. Who knows? Um, and and uh, I, there's one sequence where it's Jason Statham in the hall and, and he he's looking at all of these devices uh, that are hung around the wall and it just keeps cutting back to his facial expressions looking in like the four quadrants of the frame and and you know it just it's it's a very it ends up being kind of unintentionally funny it's it's kind of good but so they they come in and uh, Williams is there locked up in a cell but being locked up in the cell has actually protected him from this outbreak whatever it is they find another what to say dispatch officer I think who is infected and so the infected people, when they, they first get infected, before they start to change, they begin to do these strange hand motions, almost like the, the butterfly dance that we see in Napoleon Dynamite. They're kind of doing that in front of their faces. Yeah, it's and sort of like they've dropped a lot of acid. Yeah, it, there is a lot of... Look at my hands. <laughs> there is a lot of drug use in this. Natasha Henstridge, our main character, uh, really the first thing we see her do is trip on uh, on a drug yes we find out her necklace which is this kind of key piece of prop is uh actually her stash as jericho calls it later um and uh she gets caught by pam greer's character who tells her that she's disappointed that she's doing it and she kind of brushes it off saying you know the effects of it will have passed by the time that i we get there so what difference does it make and um, and she, she trips on it and then that actually comes back later and becomes a sort of key moment, uh, in the film, which is kind of strange. So, um, Carpenter certainly sort of pro drug use in this film, at least in, in terms of how the characters interpret it. Um, but so that is her stash and, and it's cool. I mean, all of Carpenter's heroes have their flaws and weaknesses, which is one of the things I love about them. Um, you know, obviously we've got... Uh, rowdy Roddy Piper and they live and he has these these uh, flaws of character that's uh, come back to assail him uh, into the mouth of madness Sam Neill's character obviously is egotistical and arrogant so I, I like that his characters have these flaws and they're they're not you know, perfect heroes, um, which of course is mirrored in Desolation Jones, who is also flawed, but uh, in 
in the moment makes the the best decision, makes a good decision. And uh, so I think there's some interesting stuff going on there. But so um, they arrive and begin to try and figure out what's going on. Very quickly, they are attacked initially by a few of them, and uh, Pamger is killed. She's kind of our first uh, casualty. But we also get introduced to Joanna Cassidy's character. Um, of course, Joanna Cassidy, uh, probably most famously known as the snake charmer in Blade Runner. Um, yeah. And so uh, she is in the film and plays one of the researchers who is sort of guiding the, um, I guess, development of the mine and was there when the original uh, sort of event took place that began the infection mm-hmm. process. But she withholds a lot of that information, right? Um, it, a lot. And she kind of does her her Joanna Cassidy, I'm a crazy lady thing really well. Um, I don't know when she sort of sunk into that being her default in movies, but I really like it. Um, but I think she's drunk when they find her in the holding cell. Yeah. And she doesn't tell them anything. I don't know. I like Joanna Cassidy. But I like Blade Runner, so big yeah, absolutely. And so then really, and that's really the first, you know, we can call it the first act of the film, although this film doesn't really adhere to a, an act structure. Um, Carpenter said that he wrote the script very traditionally, um, but then in the edit, he decided to to mix it up, right? He, he was sort of bored by the, you know, point A to point B to point C, structure of the film and so that's where the flashbacks and the interstitial narratives sort of came into play i really Uh, i enjoyed that a lot it's interesting yeah Um, it was at least something different i mean so many action movies do have that you know beginning middle end you know we're we're here on the planet here's where we go and then here's the end of the film and this one sort of had this almost recursive feel sometimes because you would have uh, Hemstridge's memories, and then you would have her related memories from other people, and it had this very secondhand sort of effect. I don't. I, I like that a lot. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I mean, colloquially, people you know refer to this as like you know flashback within flashback within flashback, uh, which can get narratively confusing. But I never really got that out of it. Like I was at no point was I ever confused about the timeline or what was going on. Uh, the only one that feels slightly out of place is Jericho's flashback. Um, so basically we get a, a sequence that takes him out of the facility hunting one of the initial, you know, let's just call them Reavers because that's what they are. Um, <laughs> exactly what And uh, he discovers that the Reaver has killed Pam Greer and decapitated her. There's a ton of decapitation in this film. Um, I guess one of the things, if, if you are a, a horror film buff and you like practical gore effects and self-mutilation effects, uh, there's some pretty decent stuff in here. I mean, by modern standards, it's a bit tame, I suppose, but there is a tremendous amount of it, and... Um, it reminded me a little bit of some of, you know, what we would see in like Event Horizon. You know, yes. a, lot of, yeah. a lot of barbed wire, a lot of characters pulling things through their skin. Um, you know, it, it's... And I it's, said it before, I'll, I'll say, say it again, again the bra made of human hands. Yeah, that that's, that's kind of the iconic shot from this one. And there there is a lot of fake... 
uh, skin in this one too. There's another character a little bit later that has prosthetic uh, breasts applied over that have been mangled. Um, you know, obviously not their their real breasts. So they're wearing an applique over the top of them, and and so a lot of very interesting a choices. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot of interesting choices to to create this you know, sort of unique look. Um, I guess we should address the leader of the Reavers who is, is listed in the film as Big Daddy Mars. Uh, that is his credited name, which I think is fantastic. And that feels um, so much like an inside joke. Um, yeah, that he didn't I mean, have it, a name. He's Big, Big Daddy, Daddy Mars. <laughs> he's just Big Daddy Mars. I mean, obviously, he's not gonna have a name. He's this cult leader who's you know been taken over by an ancient Mars ghost. So whatever. Um, but and Big Daddy Mars talk. is kind of like this. <laughs> he's kind of like this weird cross between uh, Marilyn Manson and Glenn Danzig and Pinhead. Uh, it's it's kind of a, a really interesting look. Uh, I think there would be several sequences in this film where you could watch it and, and just think that it's, you know, a little something from a Marilyn Manson video from the mid nineties. Uh, yes. you know, certainly influenced, uh, or, or along those same lines, you know, and that's not derogatory either. It's just, it's, it's pulling from a lot of those same visual wells, uh, in some interesting ways, but. Um, so that flashback though, is he's sort of discovering her and then eventually hooking up with Desolation Williams's crew unbeknownst to him. He thinks they're just regular survivors. Uh, that flashback is one that was like, well, we could have just seen this sequence. Like we didn't have to stop it there. But, uh, again, I think Carpenter's just playing with narrative. He's trying to see how far he can push that traditional structure you know why do what we've always done uh which is what makes me think he's just he's kind of getting tired of the process here like i think he's said a lot of what he wanted to say he's done a lot of what he wanted to do and he's interested in in pushing in some interest in some other directions some more interesting directions and you know once again he's just sort of outpacing what people were prepared for in 2001 and it's fairly obvious that he's he's experimenting, at least obvious to me, because the rest of the film, as far as look, is incredible. But the prop design is gorgeous. The lighting is gorgeous. Um, the set design is wonderful. I mean, for being a smaller film, it, it looks great. Um, so he's not... It's, it's not, not like there was any sacrifice, sacrifice of quality on his part. part. So, so I, I always, I have a problem with, with, you know, people saying that it's just a bad film. It was, you know, poorly made. It's not actually poorly made. It's just working with what was there, I guess. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I was hoping we'd, we'd, you know, sort of hit on the production design because it is a film that has constraints, uh, much like we would see in one of these new modern Bloomhouse productions. You know, I mean, the, the reason why horror movies are filmed in a single location is because it's cheap, right? You can do it yeah. inexpensively. And, and, you know, this is a manufactured set. It is not um, a, a real location. They were, again, it was a gypsum mine. So that was a real location, but everything is built. And, uh, you know, you can tell that Carpenter, who you know, tries to do as much in camera as possible, like he's not a big CG guy, uh, although there is a CG shot in this. At least I think that's what it is. It, I, watching it today, I was trying to figure out if it was CG. There is a, a sort of flashback to the the creatures of Mars that have now inhabited them, which we'll get to here in a, a few minutes probably. But uh, I do believe that is a CG shot. It's it's 
pretty rough about what we would expect for you know 2000 early 2000 inexpensive cgi but but most of the film is practical right um the train is a model which you know you can tell at times although i think it's lit very well and most of the time i it didn't bother me like the train did not look bad uh maybe the first shot as it's rolling out of the the city in mars it looks a little bit you know hey this is a model on a track kind of thing but for the most part, I think it works really well. And the, the, the sort of mining cityscape is good. Like, I think it, it looks nice. It's uniformly designed. It gives them some interesting angles and things to shoot. There's kind of like a main street, a main thoroughfare that everybody travels down that provides some nice action set piece for the end. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's all built, it's manufactured, it's designed, uh, the interior spaces look really good. I mean, you can really tell that Carpenter from his experience in independent film, he knows how to maximize what he can get on screen for the money. And, and that you can see a hundred percent. Um, and again, I'm shocked at how good the outdoor lighting is. Cause it's all live. Like, yeah. um, the outdoor stuff, it's all shot at night, which, um, again, in the commentary Carpenter said it, he basically did it because he just likes being up at night. He doesn't like waking up early, <laughs> so he shot the whole movie at night. Even though Mars has a fairly long day cycle, um, the whole film takes place at night. And uh, it, it looks great. Like, lighting at night is hard, and, and he pulls it off for the most part. It's a little flat at times as a result, I guess. I don't know. Would you agree? Like, it feels a bit flat, especially in a few of the action sequences, to see these black-suited police officers against this red background and it just doesn't always pop necessarily but it still never looks bad i i guess i mean it doesn't pop but at the same time i'm thinking back to because this was around the time that we, we had all these movies about mars am i am i misremembering we had like red planet all these other shit movies about Mars. Oh yeah, no, there were there were a ton of Mars movies. Obviously, we have Mission to Mars with uh, oh, Mortal, oh, Gary Sinise. Oh. We got Red Planet around this time. Yeah, um, um, Red Planet. Yeah, was it was the one another that one of those time out. periods, like you know Armageddon, Deep Impact, where the studios kind of all knew that they were working on Mars stuff, and and everybody was trying to to copy. We everybody. gotta get a Mars movie out. Um, but I like. I would prefer the lighting to be a little bit on the safe side as opposed to embracing that kind of blown out red oversaturated look that the early 2000s had especially for that mars landscape i'm thinking i'm i'm blaming uh red planet because that was such a terrible movie um but i i feel like this film looks better because it didn't give in to that like MTV kind of overdone get your ass to Mars kind of aesthetic. It actually reminded me a lot. Right. Of yeah. The, we're not in total recall territory here at all. Um, no, no. I mean, it, but it reminded me a lot of total recall and its approach to set and to lighting, because I think Paul Verhoeven has a lot of the same ideas. Um, granted, he's a little more extreme with his, but I liked that simplistic approach. Yeah, I think Carpenter is just really good at that naturalistic shooting style where he's just putting a camera in an environment and then letting things happen. Um, I think there's some... I don't think anybody in this film is miscast. 
but only because I think the characters are so broad that I wouldn't want to be a casting director on this film because I don't know if I could uh, find anybody. So let's kind of run down the the cast real quick and sort of call it out because there are some great people in this cast. We've called out a few already. Um, so in the lead, we have Natasha Henstridge, who is, um, I mean, she, she looks great. I mean, she's physically stunning. She's pretty decent. The stunts look pretty good, and most of them she's doing it herself, which is really impressive. Um, I think from a character standpoint, there's not a lot of tonal consistency with her, and I don't know, what is what is your take on that? I mean, our first shot of her in the train is she almost looks like she's crying uh, as she's sitting there before she, she takes, you know, her drug. So uh, I don't know. What do you think of, of her as a character? Uh, Melanie is her name. She's a little, a little flat at times. And I think that's just, Henstridge didn't, I don't feel like she really knew what to do with the character. I don't know it, it feels like there's something missing. <laughs> um, I, I do. I like her. I mean, she's she's great in in the action scenes. She's she looks the part. She sort of embodies the the, the female badass. But I guess I was hoping there would be a little bit more dimension to her character. Um, the drug use added something, but I. I Selfishly, I would have wanted more, I think. Um, but, but that's, that's just, just a time constraint. Yeah, in terms of character, it feels like she just needs like one more thing, right? One more thing to set her apart. Um, you know, and whether that's something in her backstory, you know, a person she's lost and now she's trying to run away from it. I mean, because that's never really established either is like, why are all these people on Mars? Is like Mars just a place where people are now? Are they only here to do this specific stuff? So, I mean, there could have been an element there, but it, it does feel like she's a bit bare. And uh, supposedly uh, Carpenter was not giving a ton of character direction. And so there is some some legitimate tonal issues between you know scenes at the beginning scenes at the end etc um i still think she does a good job with the character especially by the time you get to the end i think you've kind of developed a like for her i, I think most yeah. of the good moments of her character come when she's playing off of ice cube uh, it feels like the two characters were kind of written to just say quippy one-linery things to each other <laughs> but it kind of works you know i am speaking of ice cube I think he's the big draw for the acting in the film, which is weird to say about Ice Cube. But I'm I'm actually sort of a fan. I love Friday. I love uh, I love his music. Um, <laughs> but in this role, he's just so ridiculous. And I, I wonder sometimes if that's not what made Henstridge so challenging as a character is that he feels so much lar so much larger larger than life, and she's a little bit more reserved. Yeah, I think that's a definite issue with the film is that those two characters, even though they're in many ways designed to play off of each other. Um, Ice Cube feels a bit ahead 
of the game. Um, so I guess we need to, to sort of call out where Ice Cube is in his career here. Uh, this is is early in Ice Cube's film career. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he is he is a year away from Barbershop, which I guess a lot of people would equate as his breakout success, even though he was hugely successful in the Friday uh, films. Um, but Barbershop's where he hit that mainstream success, where he kind of got into everybody's homes and is like, oh, this guy's really funny and he's endearing and, and I like him. And then, of course, you know, we get uh, eventually to, oh, geez, uh, what's the name of those movies? Uh, the ones where he goes on the road trip with the kids. Uh, are we there yet? Oh, there we yeah, go. Yeah. yeah, so that's where we get Are We There Yet? And then Triple uh, X, he takes over the sequel to that. And, and really sort of takes off from there. And so he gets, uh, he, he becomes a, a much more sort of larger than life household figure here. But in, in a lot of ways, this feels like a performance that is in between those two spaces, right? Like you can tell he is, he is trying to be Kurt Russell. He is trying to be Arnold Schwarzenegger in terms of like an action, a lead action star performance, uh, which he will come back to and refine with Triple X, uh, State of the Union in, in a few years. But he's, very accessible he's he's funny like he gets easily the funniest lines in the film by a long shot um and he is also just he kind of anchors the survivalist component of this film he is the character that is constantly saying like well if we want to live this is what we need to do and i want to live and i i think that that voice is really important in a film like this i think carpenter has always been good at having a character voice that reality and not letting them get overshadowed by the the hero who's going to do the right thing you know because um, in this one you know natasha answer is like no we got to go back we got to do the right thing and he's like why <laughs> why would we do that you know and it's just a really it's a really good character to have in the mix and uh he sort of plays he sort of plays the audience role where it's you know this is what the audience is thinking and ice cube is the one who's gonna say it yeah i think um i think that's very true i think he's he's in that mode of voicing what a a real person in this moment would actually feel and do and and he's great like I, I think he's easily one of the strongest things about the film uh so the remainder of the movie is is populated with uh, a great cast but they're again if we're being honest i think kind of underutilized uh this yeah. is jason statham basically just playing the smarmy guy uh, yeah. and doing a fantastic job i mean as as he is wont to do um but i think the the weakest performance unfortunately is uh Clea Duvall uh who I know you're a big Clea Duvall fan uh I am too I think she's she's a truly wonderful actress she is coming to her own um she's a working actress though in that if you know if a director is not willing to give her direction then she's just not gonna perform really I mean if if there's no if there's no if there's no place for her to take that character, I don't see her figuring out a way to do that. Um, so I, her her character is completely flat in the movie. I still love her because I I just do, but it's underutilized. Just there's not enough done with that character to even justify having it there. Yeah, at the beginning, she uh, feels like she's going to be like the, the the tech expert, or she's going to be like the 
the the person who knows things. I mean, if we're going to be super generic about character types here, like she's the one that's done the work, she's done the research, she knows the it's area. It's a Unix system. And, <laughs> and and then that just gets lost. And and in essence, for the bulk of the film, she's just sort of staring into camera right uh, as something terrible is happening without you know really emoting as to what's taking place. Um, she gets a little bit of an action beat later as she kind of climbs the, uh, it's a TV tower is what I know. That's what I think it is, but it's, it's there. And, and she kind of climbs that in order to report back about the train and, and, and things. So, you know, she has a couple of moments, but it really feels like as a character, she doesn't really get to do much. She's not really yeah. given much opportunity to interact, um, with the other characters in a significant way. And, and it feels really underbaked and she's an actress, uh, an actor that I think just could really anchor a sort of, you know, supporting role like that. And, and she doesn't really get the chance to. I also think she would have been interesting in the lead role. Um, someone who's maybe a little less beautiful. <laughs> I mean, I'm always kind of voting for, for casting decisions to be on the more realistic side when it comes to action and horror. Um, but, but I think she could have done a little bit more if perhaps her part had just been more. Um, but yeah, the overall, very underbaked, as you said. I think that's perfect. Yeah. Um, so uh, Joanna Cassidy, as we mentioned, who really just serves as, as the background exposition for what happened to the team and then eventual fodder. But um uh, a few other supporting actors from the time period. Big Daddy Mars is played by Richard Citrone, who is a, a big-time Hollywood uh, stunt actor. He has been in a tremendous number of, of films. He works pretty steadily even today on most of the big-budget action movies. Uh, even Extraction, the new one that just came out on Netflix with Chris Hemsworth, he was one of the stunt performers in that. So so a long-time Hollywood stunt performer who gets the chance to sort of be center scene here and uh, does a really cool uh, job with that that character, if you can call him that. He speaks in gibberish. There are a number of sequences where, as the cult leader, he is, is leading his crew uh, just with guttural grunts. That is obviously supposed to be a language, but... Um, you know, we, we can't understand it. And so it, it just ends up uh, serving as this background noise to these these scenes and moments. But again, he's sort of the love child between Marilyn Manson and Pinhead. Uh, a lot of uh, eviscerations. Very famously, he's got these three sort of deep gouges in his face that grow across the ridge of his nose that are mm -hmm. constantly seeping blood. And it looks interesting and kind of cool. Looks cool. Uh, skin is pale. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um but I, I think it's it's cool, I, but it's a small cast. I mean, there's really not a ton of people in this movie. Uh, you can tell that that was one of the other probably budgetary concerns. But I think what's here is good. It's serviceable. Everybody kind of fulfills the role that they have. Uh, I just feel like a lot of the, especially the, the sort of second-tier supporting cast who's there to sort of flesh out the crew, a lot of them, there could have been some neat moments. You know, I think back to, you know, we've got our, our hallmarks of this genre, like Predator, where, you know, most of those characters say five lines over the course of the film. But those five lines are so sort of carefully chosen. Sexual Tyrannosaurus. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, in terms of cast, I think there's a lot to love here. Uh, you know, just some faces you'll recognize and some 
some interesting stuff. So they attempt to leave a couple of times, basically get forced back in. They barricade themselves inside one of the buildings, like the, the central facility or something. They begin to realize that this thing, this entity, which were shown, you know, a, a kind of predator cam, uh, sort of, you know, a hunt cam of this thing sort of moving through the facility in this nice kind of washed out it's it's like red inverted over the top of film. It's it's a really interesting effect, if I'm being honest. I've never really seen anything like it. But we'll call it the monster vision for this movie. And it's sort of uh, when you kill someone that has it, it leaves their body and then finds another host. And I so the movies did that after, but not and not as much before. I, yeah, I don't remember too many places working like this. I mean, we've got, you know, the classic hallmarks, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, things like that. But as far as communicating in this style, we've got maybe Sam Raimi doing a little bit of that with uh, Evil Dead with his, you know, yeah. the, the board cam through the trees of the demon mm-hmm. hunting out its new host kind of thing. But this feels very uh, like a very Carpenter thing to do to communicate these ideas uh, in an interesting way. But so they, they realize that it's airborne, you know, so they've got to be watching for it. And ultimately, our, our heroine, uh, Melanie, is uh, infected, right? And so they realize this, and they basically kind of unceremoniously toss her outside, which I think is probably the most hilarious choice in the mm-hmm. film. Uh, they don't lock her in a room to monitor her progress. They're just like, nope, she's infected. Toss her outside. Fuck her. Yeah, I mean, uh, and so they toss her outside. Uh, but before they leave, uh, Statham gives her a hit of uh, the drug. And we end up getting probably the most interesting sequence in the film, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. Um, so Melanie goes, uh, and we'll just call it the bad trip. Uh, so she... She is infected, absolutely, and she begins. Uh, we get an, a we cut back to the tribunal or the the court sequence, whatever we want to call it, and uh, she's explaining to them that she heard voices, that she saw visions, and this is where we get a little a little CG overlay of <laughs> what we can presume is Big Daddy Mars in his original form, you know, stirring his followers. I guess to war. I don't know who they would be fighting against, but it doesn't really matter. Fighting against Mars. (laughs) Other Martians, I guess. And so (laughs) she sees them and uh, then she somehow is able to consciously make the decision that uh, she's going to resist it. And so she kind of vomits the the spirit entity, the dust, the Martian dust, if you will, the ghost. Uh, She vomits it up. And, and it goes away. Uh, so she, uh, I, I, it kind of feels like Dune, you know, like she's passed the water of life kind of thing, and now she can can assume her role as the Kwisatz Haderach or whatever. Well, and, and if we look at, if we look at the sort of female... It kind of feels, to me, like it's it's a bit unnecessary. Like we don't really need it. It doesn't have a story function. Um, For me, that scene... I went back and forth with that entire concept. As a scene in the film, I don't think it works. I mean, I don't think it's necessary, I guess. But I started thinking, I've been kind of obsessed with the whole matriarchal society thing. I think that I would love to see something else like that done and done well. 
I think her resisting this parasite thing um, is sort of cool because it's it's this female character, it's this female-dominated society, and we still don't get a, a sense that there is any sort of domination from females. I mean, we have a lot of really strong female characters, but she kind of dominates this possession and says, nah, I'm not going to let it happen. And to me, it sort of cements her as the ultimate badass of the film. Everybody else is running away. All of the male characters are running away, and she's facing this infection on her own. Um... So, so from that, that aspect, that I like it, but it wasn't executed as well as it could have been. I think that's that's its real function for sure. I think it's it's to show that she has the this internal strength that she can resist these urges, uh, where pretty much everybody else that has been infected has fallen to them. Like nobody's been able to fight it off. So I think it is about establishing or reestablishing her as a badass. You know, I guess the equivalent. We don't need this for the story, but we need it to show that our character's a badass. If we're, we're looking at sort of late Carpenter, would be the, the basketball scene in Escape from L.A. Yeah. Where, you know, this is ridiculous and it, we don't need it in the film to progress the, the overall narrative. But this is a chance for me to show you that Snake Plissken is awesome. Okay. It's also a little bit of a Kurt Russell on a surfboard moment. Where yeah, absolutely. It's Kurt I mean, Russell and uh, uh, Henry Fonda, like, surfing the the uh what is it? i don't even remember is it the LA God, Sears, so like, uh, or the uh, the la river uh, kind of oh, i so love that movie it's great yeah we'll definitely talk about that one soon. um but it and i think it does work for that uh because then she wakes up and she gets immediately attacked by one of these uh reavers who has this huge like spiked sword that is just awesome like it, it's just it's a great prop i i wish that's uh, I knew where I could buy that thing because it's great, which she then immediately fashions into a grappling hook to climb over the wall, so cool. uh, which is fantastic. Uh, and as she was climbing over, it had been a while since I'd watched this, and I was like, "Oh well, you can't just leave that that rope there. You got to pull that over so nobody else can climb." And then she immediately does. It I was like, "Awesome, great!" It's yeah. that's little stuff that's like a John Carpenter hallmark to me is just those small moments where it's like, "Hey," and then it. He, he carries through, through and he gives you that payoff of like, oh, don't yeah. leave the rope there. And then he doesn't leave it there. I've, I've always loved that about his movies. Um, Chuck Palahniuk calls them buried guns, which yeah. is it's perfect. I mean, he, he plants this idea and then digs it up later and, and pays off. And I've always liked that about him. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely true of Carpenter's work. Um, he is very very good at establishing the notes and beats of his screenplays and then then really paying them off i think that if anything that's one of his strengths um as as a screenwriter as a as a storyteller if we want to be just reductive about it is that he establishes these very specific parameters and then he is fully capable of paying them off without fail so i guess um you know, as we, we kind of move to the end of the film, the last 20 minutes is really kind of just a breathless uh, action sequence. Again, very typical of Carpenter and uh, his final acts. Uh, they do escape on the train. The train returns. Uh, but Henstridge feels the need to go back to stop this before it spreads even further. 
even though we don't really have much evidence as to whether or not they can stop it, um, but they they feel the need to try, uh, which I think is is pretty cool, very heroic, um, and certainly something that you know at this point a character that we've we've been shown is is pretty amazing, pretty badass would would do. Um, so what are your thoughts about the, the ending of the film, right? So what do you, what do you feel about it? It could have been, it could have been better. I don't know. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? So you, you start, cause I'm not sure. The only thing that I think is, is unfortunate about it is that it really is just, you know, ultimately how all of, of our secondary heroes die. Um, and and I when I say all die. of them, I mean all of them. Like, everyone and, and, dies. And you're um, waiting for that in the whole movie. You're just right. waiting. Like, all these people are going to die. I just have to see how it happens. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people say that the, the framing device relieves, you know, releases tension. But, you know, when you know it's coming, it becomes an issue of, well, when and how, right? That becomes the tension. And I think, um, you know, just like with Halloween, I mean, you know those girls are going to die. Like, you know that. Like, it's, it's, you know they're not going to live. You know you don't have the, there's not a scene of Laurie Strode sitting in a room with a cop at the beginning talking about her experiences. So, you you know, you as a final girl moment, there's always that tension. But, yeah. you know, most of the other people in that film, just because of the genre of film, you know this is going to happen. Uh, and those have only been tropes that have been reinforced over time. But I think it's really... Again, it's it's sort of classic Carpenter in that he wants his big, all-encompassing action sequence where he can he can have characters you know shooting guns, explosions in the background, fire going off. Um, this one has a lot of of blades being thrown. I guess the <laughs> limita- the limitation on the you know the Reaver style characters of not really using guns or any you know modern weaponry is that they're constantly like hurling saw blades and stuff, which is is really interesting. And and again, there's some nice practical effects. There's some really good. And uh, again, moments. it's something that Joss Whedon borrowed wholesale for his readers. Yeah, it's very true. You know. Um, I think that uh, for me as an action sequence, it works. The the train being kind of the anchor point that everybody's kind of coming in and out of the train to uh, protect themselves, that the train is kind of the salvation point, I think is really cool. Um, you know, again, the, there'll be those who look at this and say, well, why didn't they just stay on the train and survive? But, you know, that's not the point. They're trying to, to do something more significant than that. And then that sets up what, you know, is, is probably the most interesting sequence of, of action in the film, which is the sort of extended train sequence with Desolation Williams and, and Melanie, you know, fending off these this last, you know, group of Reavers that have, have attached themselves to the train, um, which I, I think as an action sequence works super well. Um, I, I agree. And, and it was it was kind of a moment that action movies thrived on when, you know, buddies would would unite and accomplish something. I don't know. It, it's, uh, oh, crap. I had a movie that I was just thinking of. Um, oh, They Live. When finally Rowdy Roddy and Keith David pair up 
It's like, yes, by their powers combined, finally we can accomplish something. And it, that moment was very much recreated when Williams and, uh, what was her last name? Melanie, uh, Melanie, 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 Ballard. Oh, Ballard, that sounds right. When they team up, you kind of get that, uh, an echo of that moment of like, yes, finally, the buddies, we're gonna, we're gonna solve this. I always, I like that in action movies, and that made the moment a little bit sweeter, I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really where those characters finally come together uh, unabashedly. I mean, really, for the last, you know, 20 minutes of the movie, they're kind of working together. But on the train, that's their, their moment to sort of bond as a, a fighting force, which, of course, leads to the mm -hmm. ultimate, you know, payoff of the film. Uh, and then we get to have like a big, you know, there's a big, you know, Mars shattering explosion as uh, the, the mining colony is wiped out. Uh, the train gets blown up, which kills Big Daddy Mars. And, and, you know, we just get a lot of those classic, you know, Carpenter triumphal moments, right? There's, there's triumph, but there's also this, like, what have we lost question. Um, because I, I think one streak that runs through all of Carpenter's stuff is this, you know, strict anti-authoritarianism like it's just this constant bucking oh, yeah. against you know bucking against who's in charge and really that's how desolation and melanie's relationship starts off is you know he's bucking against her which leads to probably the greatest line in the film which is uh you've just got the woman behind your bullshit uh instead of you've got the man behind your bullshit, uh, which I think is fantastic. It's really the only like late film reference to this concept of the matriarchy, but I think it's the most effective because if it's, this truly was a matriarchal world, that is how characters would refer to this situation, which I think is great. And that's, that's where I wish that that entire kind of subplot had been fleshed out even more in the film. I, I, I know that I compliment Carpenter on his, you know, shunning big world building, but I do think that that would have landed a bit better and landed maybe more so if we'd given more uh, time to the, the matriarchal subplot. Um, my favorite line in the film is, I want y'all jacked, ready, and double tough. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite one. Yeah, that's a good one too. I, again, yeah, Ice Cube gets yeah. all of the fantastic lines in this film. Like he, he really, he feels like the Snake Plissken of this movie, who just gets the best. You know, he's always got a line to come back. He's always got that last phrase that leaves him on top. It's, it's, it's great. Like he's, he's truly, truly doing a great job. And I think you can kind of see why he becomes the star that he does in the next couple of years as his acting chops continue to, to get refined. Like it's, it's really something else. And in many ways I kind of wish that this film had done better so we could see him sort of play around in the sandbox a little bit more. Um, so we get a really nice sort of ending scene where, um, Melanie's been injured and he's kind of doctoring her and, and it seems like they're kind of bonding and, and almost feels like they're, um, you know, they're kind of hitting on each other back and forth. And then he uses that as an opportunity to handcuff her to the bed so that she cannot uh, escape and he can make his exit, uh, right. which she eventually allows because, you know, they've come to this accord. And then we, we sync back up with the opening scene, right? We're in the tribunal right. or the, the hearing and they're, they're just trying to ascertain what, what has happened. Uh, she finishes telling her story. She's released. 
and you know, again, in sort of traditional carpenter style, everybody's like, well, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> what are we supposed to do with that information? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, because authority is completely inept at dealing with real problems in any of Carpenter's uh, films. And so that's exactly what happens here. Uh, Melanie returns to her room, presumably, which looks kind of like a basement <coughs> and, uh, tries to get some sleep, but then is almost immediately awoken by, uh, alarms as the, the colony is being attacked, uh, presumably by the same, you know, creatures or, or the same power, at least that was attacking them before. Um, which leads to really the the end of the film, which is you know Melanie and Desolation reuniting with very shiny guns, the shiniest of guns, if we're being honest, and yeah. uh, deciding that they are going to go and and kick some ass, and then Ice Cube in in breaking all of the rules and just having so much fun looks directly into camera and smiles as he walks away, uh, which Carpenter hides a little bit with a. Uh, a sort of fade to black, but uh, it is absolutely him looking directly in the camera and smirking, uh, and which I, was, I kind of love. I I love that, that aspect of the film. I, I kind of I think it could have gone even cheesier and and held its own maybe a little bit more. I think Carpenter went a bit more serious in tone, and then put Ice Cube in the role, and he's. He primarily acts in a comedic capacity, so any lines you would have given him probably would have come out humorous, just because of his delivery style. And oh, uh, then yeah, I think so. We have this, you know, this wonderful moment at the end where he's just such an over-the-top action star that he's holding the shiniest of shiny guns, and then looking into the camera with a smirk. Like it was, it's perfect. Yeah, it fits. Um... I think we could we could definitely have a talk uh, about tone uh, because this film is pretty all over the place. And I would say that's probably the thing that a lot of people who might watch this will react to negatively the first time. Because this is a, t- a film that will vacillate between, you know, someone having their, their throat slit open. Um, they make a joke out of a dude cutting off three of his fingers. Like it's a humorous yeah. beat as this guy's trying to, was he, he's trying to like open a can of beans or something. And, and he literally chops off three of his fingers and characters just turn and laugh at him. Uh, so, th- I mean, from a tonal Which standpoint, made me laugh too. <laughs> and that's not fair. Yeah. I didn't want to laugh at that. It's, it's a very, it's a very interesting movie. And, and again, it feels just like Carter, like Carpenter just sort of, this is what I like. I think this is interesting. I think this is funny. And he, he doesn't really care about, um, he doesn't really feel like he cares much about his audience at this point. Uh, he's, he's pleasing himself. And, yeah. and I think that that's kind of fun. You know, we rarely get to see a filmmaker truly make a movie that they want to make. And, and this kind and, of feels like it. And I, I think, I think we might be moving toward a sort of second renaissance of that indie filmmaker um, where we can have people make small pictures that are what they want to do. And, you know, I see a lot more unsuccessful films, especially with, you know, distribution platforms like Netflix. I see films where a lot of things don't work. But at the same time, I see more filmmakers doing what Carpenter did in this movie, which is 
this is the movie I want to make. And should you want to watch it, that's that's great. But if you don't, that's great too. <laughs> yeah, it, it really feels that way to me too, that we've kind of come back to a, a time in filmmaking where budgets being what they are, equipment being what it is, you can, we're seeing more directors just sort of attack projects that, that satisfy them and then find an audience with other people who are also satisfied by those same things. You know, once again, it's, it's Carpenter just being a bit ahead of his time. You know, the thing was just 15 years too early. Um, they live was, you know, in terms of mass consumerism and commenting on that part of society, it was just a few years too early. And this too feels like if this was a, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way at all, if this was a direct to Netflix mid-budget action film, I think it would do really well. I actually I do. do too. I do too. Um, I think if it were made 2010 and beyond, like maybe within, you know, 2010 to 2020, that, that space, it would have had a more kind of polished um, aesthetic. It would have been a little bit more approachable for people, probably because films have trended that way. I don't know. I thought of... Um, especially during like the, the mutilation sequences and a lot of the kind of crazy MTV <laughs> um, fast action sequences. I was thinking of movies like Dread, where they take that sort of big bombastic action film that still has these very serious notes and these sort of, sort of underlying discussions and really interesting you know, plot points, and it blows them up and just sort of lets them exist on the screen as these um, over-exaggerated moments. And I think that would have really helped this film out. I understand why it's not in there. I understand that that, you know, 2000, you just didn't make a lot of movies like that. Um, hence why, you know, a film like Event Horizon comes out in 97 and people just pan it. They're like, this is crap. Um, because it pushed the envelope as far as, you know, extreme visuals, I guess. Um, but I think if, if this had come out in like 2010, it would have been really successful. I think it's an interesting time in terms of, of filmmaking technology as well, because we were in the midst of a huge series of sea changes where... A lot of these independent filmmakers now have access to tools and technology you know, in terms of obviously special effects, but even just the actual cameras, the the physical hardware being used to create film, you know, didn't exist in this fashion. And Carpenter has always, to me, seemed like a guy who was very interested in finding the most efficient ways to do things. And it feels like if he had had some of those tools to work to make this project. Um, you know, a digital, you know, a digital camera uh, of of good quality, uh, some slightly better special effects software, and and companies working with him to to hone some of that stuff. I think it would be an entirely different story. You know, you could take the exact same framework, the same you know sort of thrust of the story, even a lot of the same actors who are most of them are still working today, um, and and you could you could really do some interesting stuff with this. I, I think it's a cool idea. It's a really interesting visual palette. Um, 
you know, I think it's, again, just him sort of being a little bit ahead of his time. I guess, you know, it's kind of like George Lucas and, and him saying that, you know, he made the Star Wars Star Wars movies he could make with the technology he had at the time. And, and this feels a little bit like a movie, if it had some better technology behind it, I think it would really benefit, you know, some of the rough edges could get sanded off pretty easily. I agree. I agree. So I guess we need to address the elephant in the room, the tomato score, which not every film that we review uh, is going to have one of these, but this one does. And it's one of the rare ones where the critical and audience scores on Rotten Tomatoes are actually pretty close. Uh, a lot of films that are critically panned, you know, your, your modern horror, your uh, independent films that, you know, don't quite hit the mark, uh, they get those low tomato meter counts pretty quickly, but then retain an audience score that's pretty high, you know, usually 50 to 60%. But this one, based on 44,663 ratings as of today... It's a 24% audience score as well. Uh, 22% out of 106 total reviews. So um, pretty low on the list of of quality films from both reported users and critics. Um, But that's what Failure Peace Theater is all about, is we're not looking at these movies as the failures that some people regard them as. We're trying to to look at them and say, okay, well, what are they doing right? And I'm going to be honest. I think Ghost of Mars is doing a lot right. This is a really watchable movie. Uh, it's It flows well. It moves fast. Uh, it's got all of Carpenter's Hallmark style. So if you've ever watched any other John Carpenter movies, uh, especially his 90s output, this is going to fit right in with that. There's nothing going on here that's exceptionally bad. Um it's, it's just a film that I think outpaced its time and I think sort of was trying to do some things that nobody else was doing in a style that Carpenter had become very comfortable with working in, right? This feels like a movie that could have been made in 1985, yes. but it just wasn't. And, and I think that that's kind of interesting, right? It's a product of a time and era that had passed even when it was made, which is, is kind of cool. I agree wholeheartedly. I'm... I'm such a huge fan of John Carpenter. I don't think there's any movie of his that I won't champion for, um, even the bad ones. I don't, I mean, in my experience, you know, I've watched a lot of bad movies. I've watched a lot of good movies. I've watched great movies. Um, this is a good movie. In the, in the grand scheme of things, you know, I have, I have seen, Films that truly have no direction, that have no look, that have nothing cohesive about them, and just end up being a mess. And this film is not a mess. It's not a great movie. It's not. It's not anything you know, earth shattering. But it's not terrible. It's not twenty four percent terrible. I mean, come on, that's just unfair. Right. I have no problem saying that it's lesser Carpenter. Is this They Live? No. Is this The Thing? Absolutely not. But it does feel a little bit like the love child of Escape from New York and Big Trouble in Little China. Like, I have no problem Mm -hmm. saying it's kind of that. Um, And and I'm going to be honest. I don't think John Carpenter is capable of making a truly, truly bad movie. I think he's just making movies that are interesting to him. And if other people are great. Um, but I think that's what defines what, you know, these, these movies that we're discussing are right. There's, there's 
a glimmer here. There's something here that, that it, you know, is definitely could be worth your time. And, Absolutely. you know, I think uh, at the very least, Ice Cube's performance and, and his character that he's able to build uh, within this framework of a film is, is a lot of fun. And, and again, sort of sets him on a course that we can obviously tell that he's going to be very successful as a film actor moving beyond that, even beyond his comedy work. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know. I don't think the uh, tomato meter is very accurate here. I, I think I would place this a little bit higher on my list for sure. And I think it really represents kind of the types of movies that we want to talk about on this podcast. You know, it's, it is a failure in, in a bunch of different ways. Financially, it was a failure. A lot of critics and, and even audience members view it as a failure. But I think there's still some glimmers here, some stuff that we can really wrap our heads around and say, oh, that's kind of cool. Um, and uh, maybe wonder what if some other situations had gone down or some other things had been done. And that's, I think that's the best headspace to approach a film like this is, you know, if you sit down and you say, I'm going to watch a terrible movie, then the experience maybe won't be as interesting. But if you sit down and look at it as, this is a film from a seasoned veteran filmmaker who is trying something different if you sit down with that sort of openness, you'll have a much better time than most people had when they saw it maybe in 2000. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I don't hate movies. I don't sit down to watch a movie and, and, and find its flaws. Uh, if they're there, I, I want to talk about them. And this movie definitely has them. I don't want anybody to think that this is a, a perfect film that's just been sort of glossed over by people who don't know what they're doing. Not at all. Like, this is a problematic movie in a ton of ways. Um, but despite those problems, I think it's still just got a lot going for it. It's, it's a fun movie. It's one that I can just kind of put on in the background and I can be working on other things and sort of dip into and out of and, and have a lot of fun with, or sit down and really throw myself into it. Like uh, the rewatch that I did to, to prep for this. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fun. It's a good time. Um, some decent action, a little bit stilted at times, but uh, you know, still Carpenter sort of doing what Carpenter does in a lot of ways. Awesome. All right. So awesome. I guess uh, let's move on to final thoughts. So at the end of the day, do you feel like this failure piece is worth recommending? It's something that people should check out if they can get a hold of? I completely recommend this movie. Um, I think it deserves a rewatch. It deserves fresh eyes i feel like it's probably a movie that people haven't um checked out just because of its age and because of the awkward time it came out but i think people should watch it i'm in the same camp i think that this is one especially out of carpenter's work that i think is pretty easily forgotten uh, i think a lot of people have sort of left it behind it's it's general standing is is certainly a, a part of that but i think it's worth sort of pulling back up uh, especially as part of like a you know if you're trying to really dig into carpenter's work i think ghost of mars is certainly not one to ignore um and uh it may give us a window into you know sort of where he is at where he was at as a filmmaker at this time and and sort of how his goals and personal goals had sort of diverged with more traditional hollywood filmmaking techniques uh probably a, another discussion that we'll revisit when we do look at the ward um in relatively short order uh so as our, our sort of final segment uh what is one thing that you think could be changed in this film that would give it the 
sort of biggest push out of being a failure piece into just a straight masterpiece? What's one thing that we could change to make that happen? Wow. I guess for me, I'm looking at my notes here, and one of the things that that really I think the film needed was performance direction. I think if if at least for Natasha Hentridge, I think if her performance had been a little bit more pointed, um, if somebody had sort of set her in a direction and said, "Here, we need you to do this. We need you to perform this way." But I, I guess for me, the the one thing I think the movie could benefit from is performance direction. I think it was maybe Carpenter's only misstep not to be more involved with these actors. Um, I would have liked to have seen somebody like Natasha Henstridge be a little bit more directed. I think that would have really pushed this movie into a higher category of watchability if the performances had been just a little bit tighter from the rest of the cast. Really, as it stands, it rests entirely on Ice Cube's shoulders. Agreed. I think that is certainly a consideration. Supposedly, um, I mentioned earlier that one of the first, you know, scenes that we get of of Melanie's character, uh, she almost looks like she's been crying. And uh, again, in the director's commentary, they mentioned that, you know, Hensridge came into the project late. Uh, You know, she was cast after Courtney Love dropped out for various reasons. And uh, she came directly from another production, like with basically no break in between. And uh, Carpenter and uh, Hensrich both mentioned that she was just burned out. Uh, she was struggling. She was, uh, you know, found herself breaking down pretty frequently. I think they even halted production for a, a while just to give her a chance to rest. So I think she was pretty stressed, and I don't think Carpenter was especially interested in dealing with that. Um, you know, he's a pretty workmanlike director. He treats it like a, an eight to five job in a lot of ways and wants to get done and move on. And, um, at least by all accounts. And I, I think Henstridge was, was sort of pushing back against that, that attitude and not necessarily sort of working with them. They seemed really cordial about it. Like nobody was angry or anything, but I, I think there were some onset struggles that, that do definitely show up in the film in terms of performance. Um, I think performances are certainly an issue for me, you know, my one thing (laughs) I think would be for me, it's, it's the script, um, not the structure of it, not the overall design of it. I think most of that functions, but it's actually the moment to moment conversations that I struggle with in the film. I think a lot of it is, is pretty flat. Um, we don't get a lot of character out of the dialogue. Most of it is, uh, as we mentioned before, it's kind of exposition, right? It's just characters telling us right. about things that have happened or things that will happen or things that are happening. And I, I think that it's it's odd for a Carpenter script because I think that there are some truly iconic carpenter lines uh, i think the the guy's really capable of building those those huge moments and we see glimmers of that here but i think a lot more more time should have been invested in those those conversations between characters the the banter back and forth between henstridge and ice cube i think there's just room for that 
and I think that'll be a, a pretty consistent concern in most of the movies that we're going to look at in this podcast. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> for me, I think the just those fundamental script issues would have firmed it up a bunch, and not even the big ones. Like the overall pacing of the film structure works. Uh, I like it, but it's it's really just the lack of of really good character moments in the script that right. that's uh, uh, I probably would have enjoyed seeing a bit more of, but. Uh, for me, that would have elevated it a bit. All right, so we're going to end this one on a recommend. Uh, if you are interested in sci-fi action, if you are interested in Mars, if you are interested in John Carpenter, uh, then if Ghost of Mars will absolutely <laughs> fill those. It will fill those gaps for you, and perhaps many of them at once. Um, <laughs> but uh, I guess we will wrap up there. Um, this uh, inaugural edition pilot episode of failure peace theater. Um, thanks for listening. Uh, you can catch us on social media. If you so choose, uh, I am at T Baskin on the Twitters. If you want to find me there, I am at Baskinator on Twitter. Please tweet me. I love tweeting. That's right. We love to tweet. That's uh, how all the little birdies communicate these days. So uh, you can find us on social media if you have any questions or want to contact us, and we will get back to you. We will see you next time. Mm-hmm.